This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join in on the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode or any other, please join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. to another episode of Warp 5. I'm your host, Brandon Shea-Mutella, and joining me for this special discussion, we have got the wonderful reanimated Patrick Devlin. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing all right. How are oh, you? good. Sounds like you've been eating too much cheese again. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> also joining us today is our good friend... Oh, just wait for the end. <laughs> also joining us today is our good friend... Brandy Jacola. Brandy, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm just peachy and I'm a little bit giggly. So it's all good. I'm great. Yes, we're having a fun discussion today. We're jumping into our movie night once again. I know that we, we've we just had a recent movie night. We just did Kung Fu a couple of episodes ago. Um, we will be spacing them out a bit more. I just kind of wanted to condense these a little bit right now just based on the episodes and how we're going to be doing the format of the show upcoming. Nothing drastically changing. You probably won't even notice. I just ended up the way that I placed them was we got another movie night coming pretty quickly off the heels off of off of Kung Fu and our discussion last week with uh, Keith DeCandido about white zombie and zombies in general. So, uh, it, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of it has to do with your obsession with the thing you don't have. What don't I have? Brains. Do I have to do this tonight, Brandy? Mm-mm. No, I don't have to. You just, just let him have it. Just let him just... have it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, we will be joined as well by our frequent guest for movie nights, Mike Schindler of Great Shot Kid and Film Damage. But before we get there, we've got a little bit of feedback from the Babel Conference on our last episode, which was our that was released, which is our commentary for Extinction. Patrick, did you want to go ahead and read that? Yeah, sure. So Tim Cooper says, thanks to thanks to the commentary. This was the first time I enjoyed anything about the episode. Great job, team. Um, so yeah, so there's someone else on Team Pat. <laughs> I'm sure there are quite a few people. I, I'm sure, but that one actually commented. So thanks, Tim. Awesome job. Then, then we also had Brianna Fern, who said, I remember seeing this one on TV as a kid uh, and being very freaked out. Yeah, that's interesting to know that the episode affected her in that way. That's pretty cool. I, th- I responded to that, to that effect. I'm like, oh, that's pretty darn cool because it's not one that affected me. 
No, but she was a kid when this episode aired, you know, she says, and I was like, what was I? I was 19 at the time, so it probably would affect a child as more creepy than it would to an adult, mm-hmm. right? Our last comment comes from Alan McDonald. Thank you so much for responding, Alan. He said, Lady and gentlemen, I got to listen to this one today. I won't say Extinction is my favorite episode, but I still enjoyed it a lot. Suspend your disbelief and picture that the sample of the Lokek virus was crashing on a primitive planet somewhere that space travel or even ironworking has not been invented yet. Some place like the Proto-Vulcan planet where the Picard is a tribal god image, the entire population would be transformed but would not have the technology to spread beyond the planet. Alternatively, wouldn't the homeworld in the episode be a perfect prison planet? Commit a heinous crime, you get dropped on the planet in a one-way landing pod like a Mercury capsule, and satellites in orbit could shoot down anything that flies, you'll never escape, but you didn't get executed either, and the Lokex species survives another generation. And I guess I'm, I kind of understand what he's saying in that this 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 virus could be dropped off on a planet where they can't get off the planet. But the fact of the matter is that at some point they probably would develop space travel. Right. And then, so does after they've been completely changed, would the virus continue to change? And would it, if they encountered more people, would that virus spread to a later encounter? I don't know. They didn't, I don't know that they really gave that answer in the episode. What do you guys think of that? No, I think the the whole point was that if you left, you would just infect the the galaxy, so it would be a problem. The other problem with it is, I mean, so instead of shooting down, you could just make um, satellites that teleport you back to the planet each time, which that works, I guess, for a little while until, you know, after millions and millions of attempts at getting off and failing, they'd eventually figure out a way to shoot them down first, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's nothing that can't be overcome eventually right eventually if there's still something alive down there with any sort of intelligence they're going to develop a way to get off that planet yeah right and actually this way would i think would make it quicker right if you just shot like if i got in a a small spaceship and tried to get off the planet and you just killed me then the people on on the planet might not figure out for a little while at least why that i didn't make it right and in such terms might not figure out to fight against it for a longer period of time. But uh, like you said, Brandy, eventually it's going to catch yeah. up and uh, they'll get off the planet. Because the, what I got out of the episode is that this this is a virus that would consistently be changing things. And if this got out, it would change the universe. Like it would change mm-hmm. all life right. in the universe eventually. You know, like you get at yep. the end of uh, the rise of the planet of the apes movie you know when they show that airplane pilot and where he goes and you see how it all spreads like i think that's what would happen you would just instead of cities on a planet it would be you know planets in a galaxy and yeah and eventually we'd have just that race right because they beamed down to the planet and they were transformed right away like they weren't down there for very long before they were completely transformed so no it, it, the only they would be the borg yes except you know fraggleborg it does it does make you wonder though what if it went to a planet where there were not humanoid uh creatures what if there were uh, quadrupeds would it turn them into bipedal creatures like the so. lokek that's crazy i think so because think we it, saw, it, we had that shot where it zoomed in on the inside of archer and it was changing the insides of him that's like, crazy well, yo. but here's the thing we don't know really maybe the lokek weren't too weren't bipedal to begin with and maybe 
you know, Archer and them were being changed into whatever the Lokek were, right? Because we you know we well, no, we saw them be bipedal in that flashback scene. Yes, you're yeah. right. Yes, you're right. Where Archer sees the city and he sees people walking around, but the point is still t- valid because it it um more the the scene that I find more important to that is that when Flox looks down, he sees the he sees to Paul, but the other three life signs, the DNA is not human anymore. Yes. So not only can it change your base DNA, it can change anyone's base DNA because they didn't have humans. This wasn't designed to change humans, right? Mm, right. So it adapted to change humans into them. You know what? This is just giving me an idea. I'm going to reach out to Michael Wong. Maybe we should do another episode on Extinction. We should get Michael Wong on the show and talk about, you know, is there anything like this in our world? And, like, forgetting forgetting what we don't like about the episode, let's just talk about the science of the episode. Why is everyone looking at me when not liking the episode? I'm not looking at you. I've got three faces on my <laughs> monitor, just, and one of them's mine. We're just mine. looking. We're just looking. I'm kidding. I'm. Ki- we all know I don't like the episode. We're just looking. It's it's almost like you got an ear growing out of your back, <laughs> which transitions us into the rest of our discussion, which you guys may be. Like, That'll make what? sense later. That'll yeah. make sense in a little bit. <laughs> That'll make sense later. But let's. Why don't we jump in? Let's get Mike Schindler in, and let's talk about some Frankenstein. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. We really appreciate you coming on Warp 5 for our continued adventures in the Movie Night series. We were sad that you couldn't make it last time when we covered Kung Fu, but, you know, it wasn't really a movie, it was TV, so that's okay. We gave you a pass. Yeah, sorry about that. We had a wife wife's birthday party, so, you know, these things. Priorities, man, yeah. priorities. Yeah, so thanks for having me this week. We're thrilled to have you on. This is awesome. So we are jumping right into the next film in our series, and it's it's a couple that we're going to be covering over the, you know a few episodes here because in the episode Horizon, there's a B plot where Trip is trying to convince Tabal to watch these movies, and they're going to be doing a whole bunch of movies in a row, and they're covering what he calls the three greatest horror movies of all time. Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, and then he says, we might even throw in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And uh, so those are going to be our next four, well, t- including tonight, this one and our next three, because I've never seen Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, so I'm looking forward to checking that one out as well. So, and Brandy's given me the shocked look like she can't believe I've never seen that. Sorry. <laughs> I forget you're in another country. Yeah, we are in another country, yeah. Yes, in Canada, I've never seen that. We were actually messaging back and forth uh, the other night. We were comparing our sets of uh, of the collections of Frankenstein, and Brandy has the collection on Blu-ray, and you said there's eight, cop- eight movies in there, so all the sequels and whatnot, and then I determined that I had seven of them because the collections that I bought uh, came out, they were one of the first DVD collections I bought in the early 2000s, and it was a nice box set. The first one had a collection of Frankenstein movies, a collection of Dracula movies, and a collection... I think Wolfman was in the first set and they each came with a little bust statue of each of them. Mm. Um, and it was a really nice set by universal and, uh, my, you know, the, some of the movies that you have on your Blu-ray set were, you know, house of Dracula is on your Blu-ray set, but it's in my Dracula set and Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is in my Wolfman set, but it was also on your Frankenstein set. Uh, so there's always fun sequels to these movies and crossovers and it's the first cinematic universe and uh, I think they tried to revive this, and Tom Cruise uh, crashed and burned at the offices, the box offices last year. 
But uh, we get to talk about some of them right now. We're going to talk about the early uh, Boris Karloff films from Universal's early horror films of the Frankenstein series. Um, the really interesting thing I kind of want to talk about right off the bat is uh, I didn't ask you guys to watch it, but I did watch the episode Horizon uh, last night, actually, to prepare for this discussion. And out of the episodes that we've covered so far where they're talking about movies for movie night, the movie night in this episode is the B plot, you know, and so Trip is trying to convince T'Pol to go to movie night, the, basically the whole episode, and T'Pol is trying to come up with reasons to not go, and she she goes to um, um, the doctor, and she's like, I got a headache, she's like, it's just nothing, and she's like, well, I was hoping it really was something, and so it's really kind of interesting at how in-depth this B-plot was and how it basically revolves around movie night. So I thought that was kind of very interesting here. So Horizon is the episode where um, Mayweather goes to visit his family on their ship, the Horizon, and finds out his dad has died and whatnot. Do you guys remember this B-plot at all from this episode? I do. Yeah? Yes. Very much. Especially Flocks talking during the movie. <laughs> yes, and Paul gives him the burn. <laughs> Should we pause the movie if it's interrupting your discussion? She says. <laughs> It's not the first nor the last time that Flocks will be yakking in a movie, so... Excellent. I don't know, Mike, it's been a while since you've watched this. You probably watched this the last two years ago during the rewatch here. Do you remember this B-plot at all for this episode? I, I vaguely remember it, yeah. And I mean, considering how short the movie is, you know, T-Paul probably spent more time avoiding watching it than she would have just watching it, right? Yeah, I forget how short this movie is. It's only 69 minutes long, like the version that I have. Why don't they bring that back, you know? I'm I'm all for the uh, hour and 10 minute movies, you know? Well, absolutely. And then after they've done this, they could just get, uh, what's his name, Peter Jackson, and it could be like six hours long if he decided to remake it, right? And nothing from the other movies. It would just be six hours of this. Yeah. You know, and it would do it in three theatrical releases. We'd have to pay $900 just to see it. Yeah. And the B-plot would all be like these interconnected subplots with Van Helsing. There you go. So, yeah. yeah. True. We would see every detail of the creature's journey. Mm-hmm. Excruciating detail yeah, of mm-hmm. the creature's journey. I, I'm totally calling Peter Jackson right now with this idea. You totally should. <laughs> Copyright Anywho. 2018, Brandon Shamatella. <laughs> but let's let's jump into the movie here. I've got a few points, uh, a few plot points to discuss on this. Um, Patrick, I'll start with you tonight here. What's your what's your uh, history with this film? Have you seen it before? Do you like the movie? What do you think? This is the very first time I've ever actually sat and watched this movie. I'm not, unlike most people on this network, I'm not actually a movie buff. So there's going to be a lot of things I watch now that I've I've never seen before, and this is one of them. I mean, everyone kind of knows all the key points to this movie, just from, you know, normal, um, you know, they've become such staples in society, different statements like, you know, he's alive and all that stuff. But um, one of the things I found very interesting was just how distracting the sound stages were um, in this movie for me. Oh, really? Yeah, you can tell. I mean, so I did a little research because it was bothering me. This was done on, um, most of the outside scenes for this movie were done on Little Europe, the Universal Hollywood Studios studio. And you can't actually see that studio anymore. You could see the building itself, but there was a massive fire that wiped out the sets and everything back in 68 or 67, something along those lines. And 
Uh, but you can actually, if you look at the sets while they're doing it, the, the, the stuff going on is good, and the actual set itself is fine, but the backdrops were so very obviously painted, there were streaks in a lot of them that you can actually pick up, and those are the things I noticed, and it became very distracting for me, which somewhat ruined the movie, and I understand that we're talking about 1931, and this the original sets were actually made in 1929, so I'm sure back then there was no one would have noticed this, but now fast forward so far and we have such better effects that it's one of the movies where it did. And I and it's not like I've never watched black and whites or older movies and, and not noticed it. But this, I don't know, something about this just, it, it annoyed me. The, the, the backdrops, the, the, the night sky and everything just didn't look right to me. And, it, and it, it took away a lot from the movie for me. Okay. Mike, what's your experience with the film? Um. I had never actually seen this one before either. Um, I had seen Bride of Frankenstein uh, years and years ago. But, um, yeah, I've never seen... And come to think of it, like aside from Young Frankenstein, I don't think I've ever seen like a Frankenstein movie aside from Bride really? of Frankenstein. Yeah, which is cool. strange, I guess. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, this is my first time watching it. Excellent. Brandy, how about you? I couldn't even tell you how many times I've watched the film. Um, I don't remember the first time that I saw it because I'm sure I was maybe four or five. And I was very scared of Frankenstein's creature, like a four or five-year-old would be. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And as I grew up, you know, it became more and more, I don't know. I, I just, I had a sympathy for the creature as I grew older. I'm like, oh, he's just misunderstood mm-hmm. and lonely. And so I uh, I developed a, a different appreciation for the film and for the creature rather than just being scared of him. And it's, it's one of those things that I haven't watched really super recently until over the weekend. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, they pulled that for Young Frankenstein. They pulled that for Young Frankenstein. They pulled that. But then they also pulled for Young Frankenstein. They also pulled stuff from the book that isn't in this movie. So I just thought, wow, they really knew their source material. Well mm-hmm. done, Mel Brooks. But still, it's something that I really enjoy because... The first time that Boris Karloff opens his eyes as that creature, and it's just, that's when the, the movie really comes alive for me. It's alive! <laughs> exactly. Yes. I've seen this movie probably about a half a dozen times in my life, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a really interesting one, and I liked it more previously than I did this time. So we'll, we'll kind of get into some of the issues that I had with it this time that bothered me a bit more. But, you know, it's really good, and it's a really interesting, moody piece. I've never read the novel by Mary Shelley. Um, Marcy and I, uh, my wife and I, we went to France, and we actually went to Mount Blanc, uh, which is part, like, part of the film, or sorry, part of the book, uh, when we went on our honeymoon. We were in France and, and Switzerland for our honeymoon. And... Yeah, so she used to teach the book in university because she was a teacher for English. And I was trying to get her to come on and, you know, record a little segment and have her compare and talk about the movie and the book because she knows the book really, really well. But, uh, yeah, I've never read the book. I would really like to read it at some point. But uh, we'll see. We'll see if I can fit that in somewhere. 
Um, the first topic that I want to talk about for the movie, um, I don't know how much we'll get into it here, is the brain itself, you know, and like the making of this body and, and this interesting plot point. And even Flox himself in the episode says, you know, this isn't that far off from the science of X planet or whatever he says uh, when, they're, when they're reanimating the corpse in the movie. Um, but there's this whole interesting point in the film that they don't, it doesn't really pay off at all, but they have these two brains at the beginning of the movie. One is a normal brain and one is an abnormal brain. And this doctor's like, oh, look at the brain and how they're different. And, and this is the bad brain. And, and Fritz, the sidekick goes, he goes to steal the brain, gets startled, drops the good brain and ends up having to steal the abnormal brain. And so you're expecting this plot point of this, this monster being like this psycho killer and whatnot. But as I'm watching the movie, like I'm not seeing that, like it's all, you know, Fritz and, and Dr. Frankenstein and the, and accidents that are provoking these weird situations. And so it's, it's interesting that they drew so much attention to this at the beginning, but it doesn't really go anywhere in the movie. And I wanted to know what you guys, what you guys thought about that kind of plot element, Mike. Yeah, I guess it really doesn't. It's kind of like one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah. Like the thing that I always think of is um, the dinosaurs reproducing in Jurassic Park where they're like, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, life found a way, you know? And you're like, oh, boy, this is going to come back to haunt them. And then nothing happens. But you could say thematically that it's very important to the movie or whatever. And it, I guess it does come back in Lost World Jurassic Park, you know, which is, you know, the, the, the really good one. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's it, it's kind of a an interesting thing that I didn't really think about while watching it, how it's like, unless maybe the, the implication, and I don't know, um, maybe the implication is that if they had picked the normal brain, he would have just been like, hello, Dr. Frankenstein, how are you today? I don't know. Is that... <laughs> Is that is that the, the the implication there? Because yeah, I mean you're right that it's not like he is a, like a violent killer or anything like that. He's just a guy who's, you know, misunderstood and accidentally you know kills some people, but his heart was in the right place. Right. See, I'm going to go back to an episode that you and I did with John over on Great Shot Kid when we talked about RoboCop Two. Mm-hmm. You know, and so in RoboCop 2, you know, they've, they've got this assistant and she like, she gets this serial killer, this brutal criminal's brain, you know, and he's able to handle the transformation into RoboCop 2 rather than these other brains that they were trying to do. And, you know, these robots like kill themselves and freak out and rip their own heads off and stuff like this. Like this is a whole sequence. Yet in the end, it's the criminal who's able to understand the transformation, so I was kind of thinking about that because I'd seen RoboCop 2 relatively recently while I was watching this. I'm like, huh, I wonder I wonder if they came up with that idea because of Frankenstein in RoboCop 2. Could be, yeah. Yeah. Anywho. Hmm. Brandy, what did you think about the uh, this whole attention drawn to the abnormal brain at the beginning of the film? Well, I thought that, of course this was going to come into play later and it would be a monster because of this, you know, it's, but it wasn't really about that because so little was still known about the brain, even in 1931 that 
they could only take it so far. Their knowledge did have an end. And so they couldn't really, they, they just made assumptions of what that would do to reanimating that brain in this monstrous body, which apparently in the book is because the, not apparently it's in the book that the reason it's so big is because, uh, Dr. Frankenstein is not good at fine detail and has to make a big person because he can't do the fine detail work. So, but I feel like the, the whole thing is that is what I felt as a, as a young adult is he's just misunderstood. He didn't ask to be made. And it's very obvious that he was afraid of fire, and yet you continually use that to torture him, Fritz. And so, you know, everybody gets pushed to a breaking point, and his just came a lot sooner because he was mistreated a lot very early on in his life. And uh, so I just, I don't feel anything but sympathy for the poor guy throughout this entire thing. And I think that's probably why they they present everything this way, because... We're, we're supposed to have some sympathy for the creature. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I don't know. Have you guys been watching James Cameron's story of science fiction? No, no. I can't stand the man. Okay. I haven't heard well, of him. Well, the, the show is absolutely amazing. It's just James Cameron sitting around with, like, you know, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and, you know, all these guys talking about science fiction and... He talks to Guillermo del Toro, and del Toro is like, oh, yeah, I've always loved Frankenstein because I've always identified very strongly with the creature, you know? And, I mean, I think that that's, you know, because he's so sympathetic, right? I mean, it, you, you really do yeah. relate to him. I think you're supposed to, you know, much more than anyone else in the story, although the ending is kind of weird here, but... <laughs> Abrupt. It's a little, you know, whatever, uh, you know, but um, yeah, but I mean, I think that that's definitely a key component to this story is uh, how it he is a victim of circumstance and how he wasn't really a bad guy by any stretch of the mm-hmm. imagination and how the mob mentality and the sort of like rejection of the other is uh, kind of what that that's that's the bad guy right those are the you know the village people they're the 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 bad guys in this in this story not the monster so mm-hmm. yeah. patrick i want to jump back and ask you that so what did you think about the brain plot point i, I didn't really give it much thought i guess i mean yeah they do point it out um very much so they 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 make you notice this difference in the brain and i just thought that's like mike um alluded to that that was just why he didn't wake up and say hello Mm-hmm. Like okay. Had they just used the normal brain, he would have been normal. He would have been like everybody else. And then you don't have this sympathetic character, right? And you don't have the mob turning on him and because he's just like everybody else. And if he's just like everybody else, then we don't have a movie. Mm-hmm. That ending was extremely abrupt, which is kind of a theme among movies in the 30s. Right, because we just recently watched White Zombie to talk about zombies and pop culture with the Canada, right? And uh, I believe that was even our last episode here. Yep. And, you know, that movie as well ends really, really, really abruptly. And, you know, movies in the 30s and stuff, they did they did end quite abruptly. Like, they weren't long. They didn't draw them out. I mean, I have on my wall the poster, uh, I think it's for The Mummy's Tomb, which is the third Mummy movie. And the movie's like 61 minutes long. 
And I think this movie is hilarious because the first 20 minutes of this 60 minute movie is recapping the previous movie, which is only 60 minutes long, you know, like, so, <laughs> like, so it's, 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 the movie is like 40 minutes long. Like once you're done with it, right? Once you're done with that recap. And I, I mean, okay, well, let's jump, let's jump into the end because we've talked about it a while. So it, at the end of the movie, they, they've, trapped Frankenstein's monster in this windmill because you know he's killed this little girl which I'll, I'll get back to there's a problem that I have with that which I'll get back to at the end um, he's he's killed Frankenstein by throwing him off a cliff and then they've uh, no did, no he did he, did he threw him off a cliff right no doesn't isn't Wait, isn't Frankenstein the one that gets thrown off the windmill? Yeah. yeah off the windmill, gets, sorry, yes. He lands yes. on the blades of the windmill and then splat on the ground. Yes, but no, no, he doesn't die. That's right. He no, lands, yeah, he, it looks like he dies because they threw a dummy off. And he, a like, terrible folds dummy. in half on the uh, on the windmill, right, and then they <laughs> like drops a cheap off suit. the windmill. Right? Yeah. But anyway, so he's trapped in there, and they've burned the windmill down, and then Frankenstein's monster gets trapped under a beam and burns and dies in the fire. Supposedly. Supposedly. Um, <laughs> until we get the sequel later on. But, right, right. To, okay, to this so point, he's dead. Right. So the, the ending's abrupt. So let's talk about the ending here. So yes, because at this point, you know, 1931, they don't know that Bride of Frankenstein is coming. They don't know about the sequel. Let's talk about the ending. What do you, Like, is it too abrupt? Are you guys satisfied with the ending? What do you think? Patrick? So I'm actually okay with abrupt endings. They don't bother me. I, I kind of like them because we've gotten to the point and now we just need to end. Don't drag it on. Don't give me more nonsense after the fact. Don't just... return to the king this thing. <laughs> so, no, but... And have like three endings? Yeah, don't Yeah, do I don't need all that. I just, just finish the movie. Great. We're awesome. But I wonder, was there... Again, I, I'm not like a really movie buff. Was there a technological like hurdle to jump that they couldn't get over 70 minutes? No. I don't think so. I think it was just the length of the movie. They just, you know, like, I wrote this movie and let's make it. Because it seems like a lot of them are that way, that they, they run out of, like, record time at that point. But no, it, it, There wasn't that, although there might have been something in terms of programming where, because everyone was about the double features and everything like that, and there probably was a thing where they were like, this contractually needs to be X amount of time because we have, you know, another movie as well as, you know, a newsreel and a cartoon and all that other stuff which is playing. But but see, here's the thing about this ending, though, right? Like, it's not that it is abrupt. It's that it actually goes on too long, right? Like, the movie ends, and then there's this coda, which makes absolutely no sense. Like, I'm like, all right, the movie's over. Cool, good, you know, nice, to the point. And then there's that extra scene where I'm just like, the hell is going on here? What are we watching? Wait, where is With this? Dad and the and drinking. then it ends, and I'm like, that's it? Wait, what? No, you can't just have that and be like, okay, and now we're done, right? Like, after you introduce that, whatever that was, and I don't know what it was, it's like now you need like an extra like half an hour or something. Wait, because it's just like... I forgot about this. Okay, hold on. So, on? I I streamed this, and... The, the building burns, right? Yeah. The, the windmill yeah. burns, and then the credits roll. No, okay, nope. so there's so you missed a scene. So there's another scene where Victor Frankenstein, or not Victor Frankenstein, why am I saying Victor Frankenstein? Because that was um, the name of that movie that came out. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so Frankenstein, um, he, 
he's like healing in the bed and then all of those maids are there and they brought a glass of wine or whatever it is, champagne to try and perk him up. And the dad comes out again and says, Oh, here, we'll just drink this here. And then he drinks it. And then the movie's over. Yeah. It's like, Oh, he doesn't need this. I'll have it sort of thing. All right. So someone edited my copy. So it made more sense. (laughs) Right. So there's, I think that it's because it's a happy ending and they kind of needed happy endings back in the thirties. Is that a happy ending? Because I kind of think like, oh, he survived. Oh, that's kind of a downer. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, well, and that's the thing. I think they did that to show that he survived yeah. because, and I don't think they needed to do that, but they did it. It's there. Well, he so. did, I forgot he did I look very that dead out, like, yes, over did. the windmill. So, Yeah, that dummy looked super dead. <laughs> Does he die in the book? Yep, but not from that. Interesting. Yes. Uh, yeah, so they had to change it, I think, for the, yeah. I don't know if it's the codes that, or That was or... definitely a thing, you know, like, uh, although here it, it seems like it's, like, there's the, the, the example that I always think of is, like, the original Scarface, where, like, originally it ended with, like, I guess spoilers for a 80-year-old movie or whatever. <laughs> 80? The, origi- like the original that. Scarface. Dude, 30. No, 30. No, 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 no. no the, okay. the original Scarface the original is from the 30s. Scarface. Oh, oh, the original. Okay, yeah, I got yeah, you. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. You are correct. It, he it, originally he's like, "You'll never take me alive," and then he like runs out into a hail of bullets or something, and the the whoever it was, the Hayes office or whatever, was like, "No, no, no, that's too glorious of an ending for him." So instead, they changed it. So that the cops come in and arrest him, and then there is like an extra like ten minutes of movie where he's put on trial, found guilty, and then sentenced to death, and then hanged. And it's like, okay, yeah, that's that works a lot better than him just running out into you know a hail of bullets. But okay, guys, you know at least we're I guess following the law or something. I don't get it, but whatever. So I, you know that is quite possible that. But it does seem strange because there isn't any sort of like legal, you know, because the whole thing there was just like, no, criminals have to pay for their crimes. And if anything here, it's like, well, this guy, he created, he, he committed a crime against nature or whatever you want to say. Right. And he's like, they're like, he's all good. He'll be fine. It was, it was just a, you know, whatever. I mean, he, he, he you know, was thrown over <laughs> over that blade and probably broke his spine or something like that but you know they grew a new one just like with Worf right <laughs> well they just took one out of another corpse all you had to do was have that glass of whatever at the end that I didn't see yeah. and everything's yeah, okay it's all good it's, it's all, all good. good but does he does he even come back in Bride of Frankenstein Bride of Frankenstein is very different so there is no but Frankenstein in Bride of Frankenstein Yes, I believe there is. It's been a while since I've seen it, but okay. I believe there is, yes. I've yeah, another it, no. crazy scientist forces uh, Frankenstein to make a mate for the creature. So he could have died. Right. See, I mean, not, the, 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 more, the more we're talking about it, the more I'm thinking, like, was that a, a scenario where, like, it, it did end the way that Patrick saw it, and then the studio came in, and or someone came in and was like, you need to show this guy surviving? Probably. I would, that would be my guess. Interesting. Yeah, would be my uh, guess. I don't know. It's the whole Indiana Jones thing all over again. Without Indiana Jones, the whole movie's the same. <laughs> I don't know what that's in <laughs> reference to, but I'm sorry. You never heard that? Uh, n- no. Watch Indiana Jones, take him out of the movie, and see if the movie ends differently. 
It's like the brain. Oh, it's oh irrelevant yeah. To yeah, the yeah. Plot. Indiana Jones has no actual impact on the plot of the right. movie. Yeah, yeah, I have heard that before. Yeah. Interesting. I only bring it up because the, the whole brain conversation a minute ago when I was watching Big Bang Theory, which makes a, a whole episode about it. Okay. Okay, so I didn't write this on the outline, but I do want to talk about the, the huge plot point in the film that I have a lot of trouble with that does not make any sense, okay? And I can't blame this on, you know, I don't know if I can blame this on writing or 1930 or what, but so Frankenstein's monster escapes the castle that he's in, uh, which I got to ask, where can I find me a castle like that where I can just go and live? Cause that's pretty awesome. Um, but he goes, he finds this little girl. So this little girl's, you know, with her dad, I'm assuming he's a single father. He's got to go out and he's got to do his daddy stuff and he leaves her behind to play. And Frankenstein's monster comes and he gets down with her on his hands and knees and they're playing with flowers and they're making them float in the water and he sees the girl and he picks her up and he throws her in the water because she thinks she's a flower and she's going to float. She drowns and dies and he runs away. The next thing we see is there's a big wedding going on because Frankenstein's getting married to his wife, which is a big part of the movie. And this father brings his dead daughter in and he's carrying her into town. And then they go to Franken- directly to Frankenstein's house and is like, the monster killed this little girl. And like up until this point... Nobody's seen the monster except for Frankenstein and the doctor that's with him who Frankenstein's monster killed. Like, you know, uh, you know, it hit, I don't know, uh, and his girlfriend saw it and whatnot when they were building it and whatnot. But that's like, that's like a huge plot line. And then the, the crowd is like, kill the monster. And then they riot and they pitchforks and torches and, and whatnot. But nobody saw this monster kill this little girl. She could, I, I, I understand that he did it and he did it accidentally. But I mean, as far as these people are concerned, she could have just fell in the water and drowned. And I'm sure this has been debated in film books and whatnot over the last, I don't know, what is this? 90 years old this movie is but I mean like that's a huge plot point in the movie that doesn't work yeah I guess I didn't notice that but yeah that's terrible it's got to be something along the lines of, of like like you were saying before they had to keep it to a certain time because of other movies and everything else there had to have been a lot of stuff they planned on taking out of the book that just never made it to the screen that explains mm-hmm. all these these problems because I can't see them making that huge deal about the brain and then not paying off anything. And then everyone knowing it's him that killed her without anyone seeing it or seeing him. There had to be things that happened in between these scenes that are just either were filmed and then cut out. And then maybe they cut out more because they had to add that last scene. Or or they were just never filmed because they knew it would take too much time. So is this like the Coles Notes version? <laughs> I don't know. I I just want to know why that guy is living on the bank of a river and not teaching his daughter how to swim. That's what I want to know. Another valid point. (laughs) (laughs) Was anybody else bothered? Did anybody else notice this or what? Oh, no, I totally noticed it. And yes, it bothers me. And I just assumed there was a scene missing because it just makes no sense otherwise. And I guess... I, I guess that people of the 30s maybe just didn't notice or didn't care or it wasn't important to them. I don't know. But it's very a very glaring plot hole to me. Mm-hmm. 
like in the 30s, people would have gone to see this in the theaters. They wouldn't have really probably have gone multiple times. They probably wouldn't have. There's no home video release to watch this over and over, right? So, I mean, they see the monster kill them, so they know and they make that jump. And we know that the monster killed the little girl, right? And then obviously, so they're angry about this and they got to have their vengeance. And so that's a logical progression of thought for the events that the viewer has seen. But it's just the people in the movie have not witnessed these events. Also, again, you know, they're kind of relying on new technology to sell the movie a little bit because talking, had, it was recent, you know, mm-hmm. and with with the lack of home, you know, home uh, entertainment, this would be something that people, people didn't go to see movies. Well, maybe some people did, but not everyone was able to afford to go to movies you know, four times a week. So the talking itself kind of sold a lot of these movies at the time. And they were just, you know, like kind of like how we use special, or they use special effects now to sell a movie that might not be so great or plot massive plot holes. And a lot of people will love it just because the CGI was amazing. Well, would talkies have been such a massive selling point for this movie at this time? Because the jazz singer was the first talkie, and I believe it was 1926 or 27. I think it was 27. I think it was 27. It was, but so that we're only four years later. CGI has been out for ten. It's not a. It, yeah, it, I, I think there were still a lot of. There weren't. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what the progression was, but I think there were still a lot of theaters which hadn't converted yet. You know, like okay. I think you still needed to kind of like seek out the theaters that could show the talking pictures. But I mean, right. that that is interesting. I mean, I, I forget who said it, but you know, the idea that like, you know, we we see. We see the monster kill the girl, so we make that that logical leap forward. I mean, it really does kind of like speak to the idea of storytelling, right? And like, what is necessary for, like, what what are what gaps our brains fill in in order to sort of like make this this story work, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's interesting because you don't. I mean, this this movie's still considered to be a, a masterpiece. I mean, this is considered to be one of the best movies ever made, right? I mean, regardless of, of any plot holes. And, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't know. That, that's really interesting. I mean, to me, like, the thing that, I, that really stood out to me, like, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that this movie is, like, my, my jam or anything like that, right? Like, I'm not going to be like, yeah, let's turn on Frankenstein, you know? But, like, <laughs> watching it, I was consistently like throughout the course of the movie in awe of things like the photography and the mm-hmm. the sets you know i mean yeah the outdoor sets were a little you know whatever but like the indoor sets <laughs> like the lab i was like they did this back then like really like mm-hmm. that's you know i mean it was like citizen kane level good you know and and i mean just the sort of like i don't know it it, it was very i mean i guess it makes sense that th- there was like this heavy sort of like German expressionist, you know, influence and everything. But I, I, I was like, I, I, I did not think that they were making movies like this back then, you know, especially with sound, right? So I can only imagine that, you know, whatever plot inconsistencies may have existed, people were just like, screw it, who cares? You know, in, in, in a similar way to people watching, let's say, Star Wars or something like that, you know, not that Star Wars has plot inconsistencies, the first one anyway, but, you know, I mean... Force Awakens <laughs> does. Last Jedi? 
What? Moving on. Wrong with Last Jedi. Stop. Stop. Are, are, are you? Oh, never mind. Anyway. Um, I agree with you, Mike. I'm, I'm on your side, Thanks. Mike. I'm on your side Thanks. on that one. High five. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, you know what I mean? I just, I, I, that was completely rambling. I mean, that probably made less sense than Frankenstein, but do you, do you know what I'm saying? Did I Absolutely. make my point I don't through my take... own incoherence? Yes. 100%. I don't want to take away from the look of this film because this is an amazing looking film and that's that's another plot point that I want to get to is the mood of the film, you know, and the, at the very beginning we have this funeral that's happening and, you know, Frankenstein and Fritz are waiting off to the side to steal the corpse after it gets buried and whatnot and, you know, this this gravedinger like walks away and they're, they, they have this body that they've just dug up and they're you know, wheeling up a hill and there's another person who's just hanging there. They've just murdered, they, they killed somebody by hanging and they cut this body down and, you know, like it's really, really moody. And yes, the scene when they're, you know, when the lightning storm is happening and the, and his girlfriend and his, I don't know, I guess it's his brother comes up to their house and they're trying to talk to uh, Frankenstein and be like, look, dude, you know, your girlfriend's lonely and misses you and I'm busy making dead people up, not dead anymore. And, you know, so like there's some really great moody stuff in this. And yeah, this, this movie's visually stunning. You know, it's really, really well made and there's some great, great stuff in it. I mean, I'm right in thinking that Bride of Frankenstein is kind of considered to be like the, if we're sticking with the, oh, we can, wait, let's switch to Star Trek. Bride of Frankenstein is kind of like the Wrath of Khan of the series, right? I mean, that's the one where like, People, yeah, people consider okay. it better. I'm looking to re- looking forward to yeah, revisiting it in a few episodes here. Yeah, I liked the idea that when back when there was a, a universal monster cinematic universe for you know one movie or whatever that that they were going to do Bride of Frankenstein as like the first you know I thought that that was a really cool idea and I love the idea that they got um, what's the dude's name who who is the director. The guy who of this no 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 or of, the new uh, one? of of the whatever the guy who did the mummy he's he's the guy who made gods and monsters which is the James Whale biopic thing and I'm right, like that's right. so that makes such perfect sense because he made the thing about the guy who made the the original and now he's making the new one and that's like the, uh, I loved that I loved the, the idea behind that I hope that they still get to make that movie just because. It sounds like it would be really cool, you know? Right. So for those that don't know what we're talking about, so if you, uh, like last year they launched The Mummy with Cruz, Tom Cruise, and it didn't do very well. And this was supposed to be a universal monster movie cinematic universe that was going to be happening right now. And I still haven't seen that Mummy, but uh, I've heard it wasn't very good. I don't know. I haven't seen it, so I can't speak neither. Look, look here's the thing. It's not good, okay? It's not. But... <laughs> the way that people are talking about it like it's the worst movie in the history of movies is insane it's just like it wasn't very good next one will probably be better you know they've got the guy who made gods and monsters making the next one it's written by uh david cap over there right so the next one it could it could very well be good but man people just treated it like it was you know the worst piece of garbage you've ever seen and no, I saw way worse movies, like probably that day, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Excellent. Anybody else have anything they want to say about the mood of the film or how it looks? I think it's glorious. It's very, um, 
gothy and dark and that's the same sort of feel that the book has as well except the book is darker but I appreciated that darkness it was my first exposure to you know that particular style of story and yeah I would I wouldn't understand truly at that time what gothic meant but yeah I got into that later so Mm-hmm. Am, am I right thinking that the book is like considered to be like the first science fiction book or something? I think it depends on who you ask, but and it depends on which version of the book you speak of because there's more than one version and the version that we have today is not the original manuscript. Mm-hmm. So I think that they have released a version that is the original manuscript. So, because um, when when Mary Shelley, I think, published it under her actual name was when she did some revisions and had this lengthy foreword and all of this these other things that actually became what we have today in the book. So I'm I'm curious because I've never read the original manuscript and I'm curious about how it's different. But uh, well, that's funny because that might be like, uh, you know, like the stand, the complete and uncut edition by King. Like that's really the only version you can find. Mm-hmm. And the the plots and everything are the same. He just flushes out certain moments and character moments and whatnot in the extended version. And they, it's like, it's like a 500 page difference between the two books. Like, yeah. you know, so wasn't she like, could be something 19 like 19 years old when she wrote that or something. Yeah. I think she was 18, 18. 18. She was yeah. 18. Yeah. And it was, she was the one person they were all like, Oh, challenging each other to re- to write ghost stories because they had to stay indoors. Cause it was a cold freaking summer because of a volcano eruption. And so they're like, Oh, let's, let's all write ghost stories. And they kept asking her every morning, have you re- thought of an idea? And she'd be like, no, and every morning she'd have to say, no. <laughs> and then somebody was talking, I can't remember, they were talking about life and death in a discussion, and she started to get this idea of reanimating the dead. And thus a whole thing began, and she had a weird dream, and basically this came out of the weird dream that she had. Man, we're all a bunch of losers, you know? <laughs> totally. <laughs> We've done nothing with our if lives. If I could only... <laughs> If I could only dream some ideas, you know, because I don't have any in my conscious state anymore. It's just... Okay, so I got to ask about Fritz here. Where the hell does the name Igor come from? <laughs> like, Igor is always the sidekick, isn't he? Like, where's Igor come from? I'm watching this movie, and I don't know, I've seen this before, and I'm like, I'm typing up my notes, and I'm like, Igor, and then Frankenstein's like, Fritz. I'm like, What? What? So I have to like delete, 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 and then retype Fritz. Where do I get the name Igor from? What is this from? Is it just from? Well, let's. Is it just from Young Frankenstein? Maybe. Yeah, uh, I've never yeah. seen Young Frankenstein. Oh. You've never seen Young Frankenstein? I love Young no. Frankenstein. It's my favorite Mel Brooks movie. I don't so... know. Anyways. I was just surprised by this. It, like, that's not that big of a deal. I'm just like, okay, I'm whatever. pretty sure that. Okay, so here's here's yeah, how he's it only in Young Frankenstein. No, he's not. Um, Son of Frankenstein and Ghost of Frankenstein both feature a character named Igor, but spelled with a Y, and that character is played by Bela Lugosi. Oh. Um, he's not a hunchback, though. Um, he's a he, he's he's a blacksmith with a broken neck and twisted back. <laughs> so. So yeah, that's actually um, 
how it started with um, a, I don't know, because he's, it's kind of an amalgam of Fritz and Igor, what we consider Igor to be today. Okay. So take that as you'd like. Okay. Well, this sidekick of his, Fritz, like he's quite the coward. You know, like he's frightened, he's scared of everything, and he's helping him reanimate the dead. And they make the and... disabled guy climb up and cut down that body. Come on. Come on, yeah. Frankie. Mm-hmm. Come on. And then I'm curious about why did they make this guy a hunchback? Like, is this is he a hunchback in the, in the book? He's in the book. Well, in the book, the, there is a character, Igor, and it's, his, it's Frankenstein's cousin, by the way. Okay. Sorry, I just I just Google it. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, well, I don't know why I thought of the name Igor. It's it's irrelevant. We just we pass on the Igor. But um, why is why do you think Fritz has a hunchback? Why do you think we've got because that's a very you know distinctive character trait to have. You know, especially in a you know in a movie from the thirties. So really, the question is is people with hunchbacks creepy because he this guy was or were they always creepy and that's why they used them because i feel like it was done to make him seem creepier but he and he but he's such a coward in you know he's such a coward yet he's so aggressive towards the monster but aren't most people that in movies that are hunchbacked aren't they portrayed as cowards usually well, i don't know is is a hunchback character like a common well the hunchback in Notre name is originally a coward is he? I only know the Disney version. I, I, I've read the book once, and I'm pretty sure he was basically the exact same personality. Okay, I mean, it was different, way different from the Disney movie, but I'm pretty sure the the main character trait was was similar. Well, I think that that may just result from the way society treats people with disabilities at that time, because oh, he's not normal, therefore he can't hold a regular job or be able to go to school with all the rest of the kids, etc. And they're just basically excised from society for their entire lives. So yeah, of course they're going to be afraid of everything. And I think that actually speaks to Fritz's character is when he discovers that there's some someone else beneath him. The creature is beneath him in in status. And so he feels powerful for the first time in his life and tortures the creature with that torch. Okay. It's kind of weird because the whole movie seems to be sort of about like the way that we treat people differently based on our preconceptions or whatever and yet it's literally doing that with the character of Fritz too so yeah I don't know it's strange strange maybe maybe not mm-hmm. as uh, aware as it as it thinks it might be you know or maybe it's just so meta that it is aware. It probably is. They're probably like, ah, now see, we have this person that whole their whole life they've been mistreated, mm-hmm. and now they're they're perpetuating the cycle by Fritz visiting torture upon this creature who is in his mind beneath him in stature. Yeah. Right, because Frankenstein himself, like, it doesn't really mistreat the monster, right? They've got him locked up, chained up and whatnot, right? Because he's, they don't know what to do with him, I guess. Like, now that I've made this corpse, well, now what, right? Like, like yeah. you know, it's not like a puppy. Never right? thinking like, about the end game. Just like all those, you know, master villains. It's like, yeah, you, uh, you ruled the world and then what? Right. So, like, but they have to take action after the monster kills Fritz and hangs Fritz with his whip, right? So, 
they have to take action. So they, they, they knock him out with this hypodermic needle and then they're going to go and, you know, do surgery on him. And Frankenstein has some kind of nervous breakdown. And then this doctor friend of his decides he's going to do some, you know, investigation of this body and Frankenstein's monster wakes up and kills him and runs away and escapes and, and whatnot. But, uh, you know, Frank, Frankenstein himself didn't really mistreat the monster from what we see in the film. It's all Fritz. Well, yeah. And until the end, of course, when he's, you know, throwing, trying to, you know, keep the monster back with his torch when they're in the mountains, hills, whatever they are, when they were, the whole village was after him, basically. And so it's... uh, But that's, circumstances out of his control elevated it to that point. You know, like he's killed a little girl and now there's a mob mentality and he's chasing after him and the monster starts to fight back at that point, right? Yeah, that's when he starts to fight back because he's he's developed a sense of self-preservation. Right, right. That, uh, you know, it's at this point it's kind of like he hurt or be hurt. I don't want to say kill or be killed because I don't think that he wanted to kill anyone ever. And, you know, again, preconceived notions and... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, bigotry, basically. It's not his fault he's a walking corpse. Right, right. So. Anywho, that's just kind of an interesting thing that I thought, I'm like, why does this guy have a hunchback? What's the necessity of it? But I think you might be right, is that it's, it might even be making a statement on, you know, that perpetual cycle of things that happen and, you know, pushing it on to the next person. And, and yeah, I think that's neat. Um, so basically one of the last topics we got to talk about that is Frankenstein himself. Um, I don't, I don't get his motivation for doing this. You know, I mean, like this is basically one of the first mad scientist movies that we get, you know, where he just wants to create this person from nothing. Like he wants to be God. Basically he says it in the film. Now I know what it's like to be God. And, you know, like this is pretty provocative stuff for 1930, you know, reanimating dead bodies and saying that, you know what it's like to be God. Like this is, this is right in the time of like Christianity being all over the States, you know, right? So it's very provocative stuff for the time that it's come out. Was it that, or was it in response to like, um, the war crimes of world war one and stuff and, and the different tests that, that actually escalated in world war two, which came a little bit later, but you know, this would be the time when, when scientists in, in, in armies were, or armies were, capturing people and then using people for tests without their will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I well, don't know. It's it's difficult to say. Um, I mean, when was the book written, though? 18 something. Like, it's, 18, it was 50, 60 15. years old by the time the movie came right, out. Right, so the book clearly wasn't written based on that, but maybe the book was picked for a movie because of yeah. that. Uh, it was published on the 1st of January, 1818. Oh, so and over a hundred years. years. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is something which is kind of not related, but just from that 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 TV show that that I just happened to see like a few days ago about this, they were talking about like the various incarnations of of Frankenstein and in, in in movies throughout the years, and I guess the first one was like a silent film, which was made by. Thomas Edison's company since like they they were the the guys who were making you know movies back then and they wanted to you know adapt Frankenstein so they did 
but they changed it so that instead of it being like a science-based thing on like electricity and stuff like that, which brings him to life, it was like a mystical, like, you know, sort of like magical thing that, that, that brought the creature to life because Edison was so associated with electricity and was pushing electricity as being this great thing that he didn't want it to be associated with bringing the dead back to life. It's weird. Oh, anyway. well, that makes perfect much sense. I mean, he was also using DC current to kill animals to prove it did. <laughs> well, there you go. Maybe Thomas Edison was Frankenstein. Yeah. I don't know. So in this movie, so Frankenstein's going to get married. He's he's marrying this woman, and the monster, you know, crashes the party and, you know, attempts to kill the bride. Again, that's another kind of a plot hole where the monster just ends up at the wedding, you know, like in town, you know, randomly. But that's okay. Um, it makes sense in the book. <laughs> Again, scenes missing. Yeah, it's kind of maybe more people had read the book by the when this movie came out. That's actually very probable, I would assume, right? Yeah, that, I mean, people read more. Period. Then that that could very. I mean, we see that now with like Harry Potter and stuff, where they're just like, oh yeah, you know, and like I mean, as, as someone who like hasn't read those books, like being in the, the theater watching those movies, you see people, or with comic book movies or whatever, you see people react to things in sort of a meta way. And maybe that's what it is. They're like, we can only afford an hour and ten minutes or whatever, but everyone who's going into this theater, it's like everyone going into, you know, Batman has read Batman, right? So they're just like, whatever. Everyone's read the book. We don't need to explain all this stuff. I, I, th- I think I, I think you guys cracked that. I think that I, I, I'm, that's in my head canon now for why these scenes aren't in this movie. <laughs> We cracked Perfect. the Franken code. Woo! We have accomplished something here tonight. The Franken code. I love that. I Excellent. Love um, okay, so what are you, do you guys have anything you want to say about the Frankenstein himself and his character in this movie, his motivations? What do you think? Brandy, did you have anything you want to add? Uh, it's just another way to keep women down. <laughs> just, yeah, the only thing they're good for is procreating. Let's take them out of that, too. <laughs> I want to do it all myself. Yeah. And then what happens when you have that creature? You don't know what to do with it because you weren't prepared to be a dad, were you? Were you? What was his motivation for creating this corpse? He wanted, I think, honestly, he wanted to prove it could be done. I think that's all the motivation he had. Okay, which is lots of science has been done simply for that, just to prove that it could be done. I mean, Captain Kirk himself, why do you climb the mountain? Because it's there, right? Yeah, I I don't think we need a, a more justification than he just wanted to prove he was the greatest scientist that can bring back dead people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not even just bring back dead people, but kind of build one. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. He acted like he created this life. And I'm like, dude, you just sewed parts together. You okay. didn't create a thing. <laughs> yeah, but if I if I rebuild my car, I have a great sense of pride in that. Okay, of no. course you do, but you did not give it. You did not create life out of nothing. You created life out of death and other dead parts stitched together and reanimated. That is not being God. I'm sorry. Okay, it's well, not. I will jump on that, and I will. I will say that I disagree with that point of view because of what he says in the book. He's like, he didn't bring this thing back to life. 
he gave life to something that never had life before. And he makes, he says that line in the movie, right? Because he did stitch this together from other parts. It's not simply a dead body that's come back to life because if it was a dead body that came back to life, you know, somebody else made that body. He put this body together by various pieces. Therefore, nothing here had been alive. Nothing of this final product had been alive before. Just parts of it had had life in the past. He has now brought this completely to life from nothing. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split the difference here and say that thinking about <laughs> it logically in the context of like something which actually exists... I agree with Brandy, but I think the intention of the filmmakers was what Brandon is saying, because I think probably the point that they were trying to make was, you know, humans aren't God and shouldn't be messing with things they don't understand or something like that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. I, I, I completely agree. I think that if you were to make, if this story never happened and you were to make this story now, we wouldn't see a body sewn together. We'd see like a petri dish of cells right, right. turn into a body and then they bring it to life. Right. And But it would probably yeah. have started its life as cauliflower or something like that and turned into a person. Yeah, yeah. You know, the gene splicing or whatever would have happened. And so. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. You still need something to start with. Which means that you need some kind of human cells to start with this. You can't invent human cells just in a lab. They come from people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I so, mean, I, no, I definitely no, agree science with what today, you're I don't saying. Think, you know. Yeah, but I don't yeah. think science agrees with what you say today. No, I think that science because you does. can you can create <laughs> you can create no you can create human cells. Um, for different things with other animal cells. I mean, you didn't start from nothing, but you didn't. There was no human cells. And they created a, an ear on a rat. I mean, a human ear. Yeah, and didn't didn't have human cells. It did not start with human cells. It started with rat cells, which are biologically different, very different. Okay, you guys are freaking me out now. Like, I have to go to bed in a few hours. <laughs> I I actually would have to research that and see exactly how that did come about because I find it difficult to believe that without human cells you could generate an ear on a rat. See, I, I remember this rat having this ear on it. I didn't read it enough into it to like know how they did it. But I, I'm, I'm sure someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure because I read a bunch of articles about it and I, I believe it didn't start with human stem cells because that was the big part of the debate. Well, then how can they call it a human ear if it didn't start with human cells? Because you can, you can change the DNA to, to match a human's DNA, but you, you resequence the DNA in some weird, odd, scientific way. I'm an electrician. Just like Jurassic Park. I can only go so far with this theory. <laughs> yeah, when, once, once you sew the body together, Patrick can bring it back to life, right? With the, uh, with the electricity. Right, but... I can do the whole <laughs> Okay, Patrick. But you got to get me there. Patrick is correct. The ear was actually made from cow cartilage. Thank you. And I'm only an electrician. And now Patrick can zap that and bring it to life. Right. right. As long as you give me a head to sew it to. to, to, head to, sew it to. But I mean, like, so that's the, that's the idea with the, um, with, with what the story that they're trying to go with, with the movie. And it's hard to like comprehend those things. You know, we get those things in Star Trek and you're like, oh, well, this is this. And it's like, well, no, that's not what they're going for, but we can't wrap our head around what they were going for because that doesn't exist you know, as far as we know it, right? And, you know, that's a common thing with Star Trek and plot points in Star Trek is, you know, it's science fiction and we we have nothing to compare it to, right? 
So right, and in 1931, what could they have possibly? They could never have foreseen cartilage, cow cartilage turned into ears. Right. Mary Shelley could have. Possibly, yes, but you know that's about it. Eddie, who? That's basically it that I want to talk about the movie. Is there anything about the movie that we haven't really touched upon that I may have forgotten to address? Any other final thoughts on the the movie itself? Uh, not 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 for me. I mean, I, I kind of covered everything I wanted to cover and talk about. Okay. And, um, I just want to say, like in the very beginning, I, I came off very uh, anti the movie because of the backdrops and everything. I do, I did like the way the movie was filmed. It's just those backdrops mm-hmm. sort of distracted me at points that seemed very important mm-hmm. too. That's the other thing, and because of that, it just took something a little something away from the movie. But I did enjoy watching it, and we were talking about. The missing scenes, and, and I think Mike was saying, like, you know, our brain just kind of fills in the gaps. And I think that all really all depends on whether you want to or not, or you don't want to like the movie. Mm-hmm. If you've already made up your mind that I'm going to go in and like this, then your brain will just fill in the gaps and you'll be okay with it. And you can make excuses. And if you decided beforehand you don't want to like the movie, or at that point don't like the movie, then you're not going to fill those points in and... You're just never going to be you know, even talking about it. You probably won't come to a consensus that fixes that for you. I think you just described Star Trek fans on the whole. Every Star Trek fan. I was just going to. I was just going to mention every fan of anything <laughs> ever. Actually, yeah, no, I no, but I, I think that's true of every fan of anything. Like Star Trek just seems to be the most vocal about it. Well, I see. I don't know that I 100 percent agree with that point of view. Maybe because I'm about to use my own example for it. Like, I, I went to Discovery really wanting to like it, and, you know, those final two episodes fell apart in the writing for me, not because I didn't want to like the show, because they fell apart because the writing wasn't very good. And, you know, I love this movie, and there's a couple of major plot holes in this, and that, that like, they're big plot holes, you know, and it, no, no, it, it does affect my rating of this movie, but, I mean, I still like this movie a lot. No, but I, I agree, and that's why I said, like, if to that point you've decided you don't like it, that also changes it. Because I know people who I will talk to, and I don't want to use Discovery because I, I don't want to use Discovery, but I'll talk about other shows that have major plot point issues, and they're just like, I'm okay with it. It's it, it, I mean, it, it's, it's a broad generalization, obviously, and there are certainly things which, you know, you can be disappointed by because of whatever, but yeah. But yeah, no, no, but I mean, I, I, I see what Patrick is saying for sure, mm-hmm. you know. Excellent. Brandy, Jeff, what are your final thoughts on this? You know, I I want to give a shout out to that young lady who played the girl that got thrown in the river because when daddy was carrying her to, in, through the village, yeah. that girl remained limp as a rag doll. Yeah. Do you know how hard that is for a child that age? She nailed it and she gets no recognition for it. Well, okay. So there you go, little lady. I got to say, the guy that played Frankenstein. That guy was limp like a rag doll too when they threw him <laughs> off the. Off the thing. So I, I read somewhere that that was a miniature. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and it was yeah. a miniature rag doll, which makes it even worse. Yeah, was, yeah but this was very clearly an yes, actual human yes, being. Yeah, no, she did a great carrying. job, but but yeah. so did Frankenstein. Yeah, and his Frankenstein stand-in did a good job. Yes. <laughs> the stuntman. Yep. Well done. Excellent, Mike. What are your final thoughts on the film? I thought it was it was really good. Like I, I, I guess my my feeling is that I admire it for its. I, th- I, I thought it was very good, but I didn't tremendously like it. Does that make any sense? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. So, so I, 
I, I kind of kind of feel the same way you do. I respect what it did for the genre and, and for film in general, but I don't ever need to watch it again. Yeah, yeah. I'm not gonna like put this in heavy rotation or anything like that. No, if it's on, okay, but but yeah. Yeah, well, the first time you actually see the monster, when he backs into the room and turns around, that was the point where all the ladies in the theater either screamed or fainted. <laughs> it's yeah. true. They screamed and fainted. Yeah. I, I do. I, I'm definitely looking forward to Bride of Frankenstein, though. Even though I saw it, but it was years and years ago. But I think seeing it again now, I would really appreciate that a lot more. Yeah, excellent. I, I, For- I've never seen a Frankenstein movie, period. <sighs> now you have. Yep. So for the listeners who are following along here, so we're planning on covering Bride of Frankenstein on episode 155, so that'll be in six weeks' time, and then 161, we're going to cover Son of Frankenstein. Uh, So, you know, we're going to, I realize that this one has come very quickly on the heels of our last movie night, uh, but we are going to space them out a little bit more uh, going forward. Just the way that I was kind of getting some of these things in here, I put these two kind of close together here. So, uh, but yeah, so we're going to, we're going to kind of space them out a little bit uh, going forward a little bit more. And uh, excellent. I really am grateful that you came on again, Mike. It's always a joy to podcast with you. Thank you so much for joining us here for Movie Night on Warp 5. You're always welcome. Um, please tell us where people can find your wonderful podcasts. Uh, yeah, well, you can find me um, on, on my website, uh, filmdamagepod.com, where I do a show called Film Damage uh, with my friend Max, who people might know from uh, Tracks from the Edge, which was... I know, uh, a favorite amongst uh, listeners, <laughs> and we talk about uh, we talk about things like, hey, uh, why why are movies sixty five minutes back in nineteen thirty one or whatever? It's it's all about uh, movies, but from the perspective of the projection booth. So, if you want to know the the technical whatevers and and when why sound was a big deal or or. You know how you run a movie through six projectors at the same time, or anything like that. Head on over to uh, filmdamagepod.com dot com, or check us out on on iTunes or whatever. Just look for Film Damage, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's fun times. Yeah, if you guys like movies, you definitely got to check out Film Damage. I asked a question on one episode, I you know because because I'm also have my Hitchcock podcast. I like to ask questions about VistaVision, which is a technology that he used in several of his movies. So I was asking about how does the original aspect ratio of the film affect projecting, and they went into this whole deep discussion on film plates, and it was it was completely fascinating. It was an absolutely wonderful episode. I think that's been my favorite episode that you guys had so far. Like, this was a wonderful discussion on how you guys were create the film plates and you have to sand them down. And oh, it was wonderful. It was I'm, just I'm glad you like that because I, I sent that to someone else who was like going to be on the show, and and he comes back and he's like, oh, I I was listening to your show, and I'm like, oh yeah, thanks. And he's like, yeah, I didn't get through the whole thing. You really talk about aperture plates for a long time, and I'm like, that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> aperture so plates that's go. what it was yeah. yeah i thought it was fascinating i was i thought it was a great discussion so you know and it's, it's really neat about what an aperture plate is because i you know what once you told me about it it completely makes sense but i i've never heard of an aperture plate before you yeah know? it's so we're, we're, we don't try to be like dry about it i mean maybe sometimes we are accidentally but we try to make it you know fun and informative and you know experiential so yeah I like listening. I look forward to it every every Thursday. So it's well, a good thanks. show. Excellent. Right on. Well, 
talking about reanimated corpses is not the only thing we've been doing on Warp 5, even though we've been doing it for two weeks. So check out what else you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM. To the journey! You really did reorient my thinking about the mess hall. Now I need to rewatch every scene with the mess hall and, and try to visualize Neelix's kitchen as the captain's dining room. I just assumed that when when she said, this used to be my private dining room, that she meant the whole mess hall, like the entire room that they're in. That would be gigantic. How have I watched Voyager for what is now 23 years and not realized this? The 602 Club. He can be soft and caring and then suddenly be funny and sarcastic but he's you know it's sort of that scene where he's with his um therapist in the car and she's supposed to be evaluating him and he's saying uh she goes you know i i love this just as much as the next girl but and then she said something like who's that girl oh the next girl the next girl <laughs> the one who clearly is better than you the edge a star trek discovery podcast you know, Admiral Cornwall, like, let's discuss this more and, you know, take off your comm badge. Like, who would do that to an admiral? And so it's like, how did he have that, you know, knowledge? Warp 5. Good thing they had those peaches at the start of the episode. Good thing oh, he know. convinced her to bite it. The moral of Check the story is always eat your peaches. Mm-hmm. Yes. Chekhov's gun. I'm telling you. Chekhov's peach. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts and your brains. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or on the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. We would love to hear your thoughts on today's show and on normal brains versus abnormal brains. There are so many ways for you to do that. The best place, of course, is to join the Babel Conference, which is our listeners group on Facebook. Go to that search field and type in B-A-B-E-L, spelling Babel, and it'll come right up. It's usually the first or second result. But if you would like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and choose abnormal brains no warp five really that will come right to us you can also find the network on twitter at trek fm and on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm brandy where can people find you when you're not picking the wrong brain up off the table you know i must have not had my glasses on when i picked that up i couldn't read a card that said abnormal brain uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandywine12, Brandy spelled with an I, and the 12 is a number. Uh, you can also find me lurking sometimes in the Babel Conference, although I don't have as much time to do that these days. You can also uh, find me popping up in the 602 Club from time to time. And in uh, end of June and beginning of July, I'm going to have like three episodes in a row. What was I thinking? <laughs> I'm just kidding. It'll be great. And I do a podcast with my lovely husband, Dave, called The Dark Corner Podcast, where we talk about stuff and things. 
uh, while walking a bit on the darker side of the street, if you know what I'm saying. There are swears. Do not let children listen. Patrick, where can people find you when you're not cutting corpses down from the gallows? Well, when I'm not doing that, on uh, you can find me at uh, you can find me in the Babel Conference. You can also find me at Magic Drop Five on Twitter. That's uh, one word with the the number. The five is actually a, a number, not a not a word. And uh, you can find me over on the edge with uh, my friend Amy. And uh, that's really it. That's all the places you can find me. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you when you're not throwing little children in ponds when they can't swim? <laughs> you, you can find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. Uh, you can find me over on the Fandom Podcast Network with my friends Chris and Tom, where we talk about Alfred Hitchcock films on Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. Boy, I got up easy on that one. If you'd like to help us keep all of our great brains coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to brains and episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone, where only the good brains exist. It, it requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate the support you, you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And at this time, we'd like to take a moment to thank all of our wonderful associate producers, all of them mad scientists of their own regard, their own special breed. We've got Norman C. Lau, Floyd Dorsey, Mike Morrison, Tim Cooper, Justin Ozer, Mark Flesso, and our newest associate producer, Chris Chibuzio. Thank you so much, guys. We really appreciate all of your support. The network wouldn't be here without your help, and especially this show. So thank you so much. Well, I guess that's all we got for you this week. So until next time, keep calm and boom on. <laughs>